and welcome to Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today, we will be discussing climate change, particularly in Russia. And today, I'm sitting down with Cameron Bertrand, a fourth year double majoring in global security and justice and Slavic languages and literature. Thanks for coming. I'd like to start by apologizing that you don't get a real graduation. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it over Zoom or Animal Crossing or whatever it ends up being, but I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to start by asking you a little bit about your chosen topic, which is climate change, particularly in Russia. Um, what drew your attention to this issue? It seems such like such a niche topic. Yeah, so I actually had the opportunity to study abroad in Siberia last year. And while I was there, I took a class on climate change and took a class on the ecology of Lake Baikal. And I really fell in love with the region. And last summer was one of the worst summers on record for wildfires in Siberia. Wildfires ravaged the region over... uh, I think the number was uh, 3 million hectares of forests were burnt this last summer. And this event has really shifted the way that climate change is perceived in Russia because it was so difficult to ignore the damage that was done by these fires. And so it got me really interested in the political aspects of climate change in Russia, as well as the really unique damages that it's been facing, particularly in the regions of Siberia. Yeah, it looks like we're going to have a lot to unpack here from, you know, the Russians themselves having their perspectives changed to what the government response is going to be. So I think maybe we should first dive in to the individual level. I mean, at the Global Inquirer, we bring you stories um, from, you know, personal experiences. So could you tell us a little bit maybe about what you heard when you were studying abroad from regular people about how bad they thought climate change would be in Russia? Maybe they, you know, were blasé about it because Russia's already cold and maybe climate change would help them. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you've tapped into one of the big issues when it comes to climate change in Russia, and that is public perception of the issue. A lot of people in Russia actually don't view climate change as a serious issue or view it as an issue for the future. It's difficult to care about carbon emissions and greenhouse gases when you're struggling Uh, to stay afloat in the economy or to mobilize against government corruption. So people don't really see it as an issue that impacts their day-to-day lives. And in fact, uh, some Russians, and including members of Putin's government, uh, see climate change as potentially an economic opportunity of sorts. So the ice in the north of Russia, in the Arctic Sea, has been retreating rather quickly. In 1980, the ice covered 7.9 square uh, miles of coast during the summer minimum, and now that ice has receded to only 4.6 miles. And the government response to this either is seeing seen it instead of seeing it as a as a problem to be dealt with or countered, was to roll out plans to create a trading route that is now accessible due to the lack of ice. And so uh, they invested millions of dollars in the new plan to open up the shipping route. 
uh, rather than seeing it as what it is, a loss of environmental uh, resources and a loss of environmental beauty. Yeah, could you elaborate a little bit on just the amount of harm and give us a better idea of the scale that's happening here? Because, I mean, the regular Russian and Putin, it seems like, and the government kind of sees it as an opportunity to exploit resources. But what environmental um, long-term damage is happening here that you don't see automatically? Well, I mean, one of the most obvious examples we have are the wildfires that swept through in the summer of 2019. These fires emitted so much smoke that it posed a health hazard to citizens living all over Siberia. The smoke was so massive that it was visible from outer space and drifted as far as Moscow and as far as uh, other cities outside of Russia. That was the intensity and the scale of these fires. And um, it's projected that stuff like that will only continue to increase and to get worse. And uh, there's other impacts that stuff like wildfires have on the environment besides the obvious loss of forestry. So for example, um, we think about fire and we think about um, how it devastates the wildlife in the region, how it raises forests, right? But wildfires emit a lot of chemicals and those chemicals drift in the air and they come back down and they often contribute to processes of acidification in lakes. So for example, Lake Baikal is a national treasure and a UN World Heritage Site. It's the oldest and the deepest lake that we have in the world. And this lake is being very badly damaged by the process of the smoke falling into the water and changing the chemical compounds inside the lake. You would think that Russia today, with its predecessor as the USSR, has a little bit of experience dealing with, um, you know, disasters that impact nature. I mean, it's particularly draws me back to maybe the Chernobyl accident from the 80s. You know, Russia's predecessor had to deal with all sorts of environmental impacts that it's still dealing with today, and you would think that it could take lessons from a gigantic catastrophe such as that, and you would have hoped that it would make it more risk-adverse nowadays with challenges that come from climate change. Do you see the current Russian government learning from its previous mistakes or falling into the same traps as history? Uh, Very much falling into the same traps, uh, particularly when it comes to delaying the response or even under-reporting the extent of the damage. So, for example, with the wildfires, um, not only do government numbers about how much forest was actually burnt differ from Uh, other forms of media and organizations like Greenpeace um, leading to insinuations about the government under-reporting the amount of damage. But when the government actually did begin to respond, it was far too little and far too late. So Russian firefighters this past summer were only able to fight an area of the blaze that was was less than 4% of the actual entire fire. There were also reports that Russian forest protection agencies were underfunded vastly by the government. Um, A lot of the actual response to these fires was local volunteers going out to fight them on their own. So much like in the past, where, um, where the government's strategy was to cover up and delay only when it became absolutely necessary to intervene 
that process seems to be and that strategy seems to be repeating itself now. So instead of uh, kind of moving forward and trying to improve upon trends, it seems like the current government is carrying over trends of hiding pieces of news that could be damning to the current administration. So let's talk about this current administration and the infamous uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, what has Vladimir Putin himself stated about climate change in Russia, and what policies has he been supporting to address this issue? Um, in the past, he's fluctuated quite a bit on the issue. He's even denied that human beings contribute to climate change. Uh, in a press conference, when he was asked about greenhouse gas emissions, he responded by saying that no one knows the precise reasons for climate change and went on to say that the planet goes through periods of climate change throughout history, and that may not be due to our actions. Recently, and I think that part of this was triggered by the intensity of the wildfires and other natural disasters that have been wreaking havoc in Russia, he's begun to confront it as a little bit more of an issue. So last October, Russia finally ratified the Paris Agreement, and this was a huge step for them but they have still not concretely targeted or rolled out any policies that concretely target greenhouse gas emissions. A large reason why they haven't targeted their emission levels is because Russia as an economy relies so heavily on fossil fuel exports. Almost 79% of Russia's emissions come from the fuel industry, but it's such a huge sector of the economy that I think the administration is afraid to clamp down on it in any meaningful way and would rather uh, benefit economically right now and wait for the toll to become too heavy and, again, react too late in the future. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to circle back to fact-checking Putin there. I mean, I'm sure our listeners are educated enough to know that, you know, bare minimum climate change is real and it is caused by greenhouse emissions. But I do also want to address the oil point that you have here. I mean especially now, I want to get into the reasons why now would be just a terrible time for Putin to um, make it, take any sort of economic risk, because right now, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia, or Russia and OPEC, I guess a little bit more generally, um, has been having disagreements about pricing oil, and, um, you know, because of that and extenuated by um, the coronavirus pandemic, um, has just made the price of oil plummet. I mean, I have a statistic from, I think, a couple weeks ago, and it's gotten worse since then, but this just kind of shows um, the price of oil, I, I guess, currently, but this was from a few weeks ago, is about $30 a barrel. Um, but, you know, compare that to $60 a few months ago and down from $100 in 2013, it's exponentially decreasing. And, you know, another article kind of showed that, like, storage space for oil was running out so that the price would drop, you know, even further just to free up more storage space. So I think, you know, Russia is going to be hurting a lot because of you know, this oil war that's currently happening that we're not hearing a lot about of unless you're, you know, driving by, by on your car on your way to the grocery store is one of the few trips that we can take to leave our homes. You know, you kind of notice, oh, look at that. Uh, gas is like 210 right now around where I live or cheaper in some places. Um, so there is an oil war going on right now that we don't notice because we're pretty much just sitting in our homes. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on that. Um, I mean, absolutely. The, the oil war 
has really derailed and I think will derail a lot of Russia's attempts to confront climate change. When the economy gets bad, issues like climate change, issues that threaten the future instead of the present, tend to shrink to the past a little bit more, shrink to the periphery of the public consciousness. And so even though we've got generated some movement, generated some attention um, because of the wildfires and uh, other droughts and things that have been damaging the Russia's ecology, um, the, the oil war comes at a very bad time. Could you speak a little bit more to how the Russian political landscape makes it difficult to address climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing, one of the driving advocates of uh, climate-friendly legislation in places like the U.S. are non-governmental organizations and nonprofits. In Russia, there is an added difficulty for organizations like this because of government interference. And this doesn't just target uh, environmental nonprofits, it targets very broadly all Russian nonprofits. Um, there is a 2012 law that requires all NGOs that receive any foreign funding, and that can be a very, very small stipend or individual donations and that engage in political activities, a word that is a term that is undefined in the law. It requires all organizations that fit under those two categories to declare themselves as foreign agents. This has really damaged a lot of nonprofits and particularly um, environmental advocacy nonprofits um, because they've been slapped by fines and extra paperwork if they receive any sort of foreign funding. Um, and it's actually forced some nonprofits to shut down. So, for example, there was a really influential uh, nonprofit um, called Baikal Wave that was advocating for um, greater protections for Lake Baikal, and it was forced to shut down as a result of this law in 2016. Another issue that plagues Russia's response to climate change is the implementation gap between government policies and their ability to carry out those policies. And part of that, as you also know, as a Russian studies major, is uh, rather endemic corruption uh, that plagues a lot of the chains of rule and law in Russia. Um, so for example, uh, I'll speak to Baikal because that's what I know a little bit better. There are laws that have been made to try and cut down on tourism, to try and cut down on construction, on the banks of Baikal, and those laws go largely ignored. Even poaching laws against endemic species around Baikal uh, go largely ignored. And so part of this is due to corruption. If you know the right person in the right office, then you can get the permit to build your summer home on, on the shore of Lake Baikal, even if it is in a, in a national park. Um, and then part of this, too, is just the inability or lack of will of local enforcement to clamp down on this kind of uh, law breaking. So even if somebody in gets in the right position of power to pass legislation, it doesn't necessarily mean that that leg legislation will have any impact in the real world. Yeah, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to speak a little bit more to, I mean, our understanding since we've had um, kind of closer interactions with um, Russian society as, you know, students who have studied abroad there before. 
I mean, and we both have anecdotes to kind of speak to this. Um, I was um, speaking with my language tutor just the other week, and we were talking about how in America, if you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, you know, you just grumble, pay, move on. You know, there's no kind of working within the system. Whereas in Russia, it's completely normal to just kind of bribe the officer and, you know, they'll accept the bribe and you'll get away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that same kind of behavior can transition over to uh, environmental regulations. So, for example, when I was in Baikal, when I was in Irkutsk, there was uh, there's a type of fish um, that there are laws against poaching it, laws against fishing it. And yet it was eaten rather regularly. I ate it um, without even knowing that there were laws against it. Um, and when I found out that the that it was actually a, a banned delicacy, I was shocked because it was so freely available and for sale on the streets. All right, Putin, if you're listening, you just heard Cameron admit to breaking your laws. So... <laughs> Unknowingly... <laughs> I guess he can't prove anything. He just has your confession. And I'm absolutely certain that Putin is listening to us right now. Um, So because of the inefficiencies of the system to crack down on um, rule breakers, we see more and more negative impacts being realized in Russia. Everything from, I think, permafrost to disease. And I think, Cameron, you can speak a little bit better to all of these negative effects, especially in Siberia, a little bit more specifically. It's not even just that the government lacks response or that laws go unheeded. Uh, A lot of the reasons why Russia is suffering is because of global climate change and the impacts of other countries' emissions. Russia is not the number one emitter. Um, Both the U.S. and China, India as well, all outpace Russia when it comes to emissions. And yet Russia still has to pay the cost, the very high price of uh, the global of global temperature changes. So, for example, we're seeing some very bizarre environmental changes happening, especially in Siberia, where the climate is so used to and, in fact, built around being cold. These extreme temperatures, even small changes to the temperatures, wreak extraordinary and unforeseeable changes. This is exasperated by the fact that parts of Siberia are warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. So we're seeing the damages that climate change can wreak happening at a very fast pace in Siberia. For example, large swathes in Siberia are built upon a layer of ice called permafrost. So essentially there is a layer of topsoil, frozen dirt, and then a couple of feet beneath that, there's a layer of ice um, called Vyachlaimerzlota in Russian, which translates to the eternal ice, which is proving to be a bit of an unfortunate misnomer as the permafrost is experiencing levels of melting that have not been seen before. Yeah, and I mean, talk about a cost to the Russian government. If you have roads and infrastructure built upon this stuff, if you're not spending money to address climate change, even if you can do some in your country or if it's other countries that are harming you more. You know, if you can't spend money preventing the problem, you're just going to end up spending money fixing the infrastructure and cleaning up the after effects and just kind of putting a bucket under the leak instead of fixing the roof. Oh, absolutely. And 
some towns in Siberia are already experiencing infrastructure damages, like huge craters opening up in the earth um, and shifting buildings as the ground beneath them literally fades away. Yeah, and this has led to a very, very strange uh, side effect, and that is a gold rush for mammoth ivory. So, essentially, this ice that has been around for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, frozen within it are these incredibly well-preserved prehistoric animals, like woolly rhinoceroses and woolly mammoths. And as the ice has begun to shift, it's revealed these skeletons and created a, an open market for hunting down these skeletons and selling them. Previously, there has been a very strictly regulated uh, market in mammoth ivory, also called ice ivory. Um, and most of this is actually sold to China. But in recent years, it's become much easier to find these uh, skeletons, and word has kind of trickled around in different Siberian towns that um, one skeleton essentially can make you rich. And in a region that has experienced long economic hardship, the promise of getting rich overnight, getting rich fast on this ancient trade is very, very tempting. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, that's great that like someone can find a mammoth and I guess make a lot of money off of it. Kind of bad that they might not be paying taxes off of that. But I guess if the taxes went to the Russian government, that might be a catch-22 anyway. Well, it's not, the problem is not necessarily that the industry isn't being taxed. It's that when the industry is legal, scientists first get the opportunity to investigate the mammoth skeletons before they're sold. They're able to take samples of the ivory and do some really incredible research on these absolutely unique and important and important to humanity. But when it's sold illegally, it just goes straight through. And so we've seen an impact on research. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible loss for the scientific community. I wasn't even thinking on that path there for a second. Um, but it seems like not just um, prehistoric, you know, wonderful findings would be unearthed. It seems like th there's a darker flip side to things that are being unearthed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, the, the act of unearthing these mammoths themselves, when it's done illegally, is environmentally damaging. Essentially, the way that these uh, trackers uh, search for mammoth skeletons is by blasting the permafrost with fire hoses um, in areas that they think might have caches of ivory beneath them. And this is, this is impacting the river qualities in the area. Uh, huge sledges of silt uh, flow out of the ground where the flow from the areas where the ground is being disrupted and enter the river. And it's had an, an increasing impact on fish populations in the rivers. There's just so many unintended consequences. Um, when you start the ball rolling with climate change, which is what we've seen around the world, but particularly in Russia and in Siberia, an area that is so fine-tuned. I mean, that's a real shame that, you know, to get to fortune, people use those means. Um, what other unintended consequences are coming about now um, from this quest to see what's been locked away? Yeah, I mean, talk about Locked Away. One of the most bizarre and unpredictable impacts of all of this has been diseases 
that have been trapped in the permafrost and that are now emerging. In 2016, in a province called the Yamal Peninsula, um, a 12-year-old boy was killed by anthrax, and 20 other people were diagnosed. Um, this is an extremely rare bacterial disease, and scientists were able to trace back the particles that infected the people to a uh, to the body of a reindeer that died of anthrax over 75 years ago and was buried in the ice. As the permafrost retreated a little bit, those particles were released and infected not only humans, but also killed over 2,000 reindeer and damaged the local economy and the way of life of the local people. Studies have been done to see whether or not diseases like, like smallpox and the Spanish flu could also be potentially locked in the ice. And it seems as though these diseases really can survive. And so scientists are worried that as the ice continues to retreat and we get down lower and lower and older and older, we might unearth some diseases that have been dormant for thousands of years. Man, I speak for everyone when I say the last, like the very last thing we need right now is a new disease. So what can you say? I mean, going from everything from, you know, permanent consequences from infrastructure to diseases to harming generations and generations to come, what are some takeaways that you want the American or the Russian listener to walk away knowing? I think that the main lesson we can learn from the damages that are being done in Siberia is that if climate change is not taken seriously and if preservation of our local treasures is not taken seriously, the consequences can be devastating and bizarre even. Um, climate change is not a Russian issue. It is a global issue. In some countries like Russia, it is difficult for nonprofits and for citizens to put pressure on their government. And so we who live in a country where it is less difficult and there are less institutional barriers in our way, I think we have more of a moral burden to react to this and to make a change before it's too late for not just our country and not just Russia, but the world. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to Cameron for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us on the podcasting platform of your choice. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. And be sure to join us next week when we sit down with Aditya and Abigail to discuss Kashmir.